0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: It's the start of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. Monday, March 22, 2021. Glad to have all of you with us for our show today. Uh, As I'm sure all of you out there know, the news of the spa shootings last week continued to dominate headlines, not just here in Georgia, but nationally as well. Uh, There were demonstrations in a number of cities uh, protesting against anti-Asian hate. There was a demonstration downtown. Hundreds of people showed up uh, out of concern for the fact that of the eight people who were killed, um, six of them were Asian Americans, and seven were of them, uh, seven of those uh, women were uh, women, rather. And so there's been a lot of concern about uh, racism, misogyny uh, that people have been uh, talking about. Um, the, um, the, the, we're going to talk about that. Joe Biden, of course. The President was in town on Friday along with Vice President Harris. Uh, their visit, their pub- the public appearances of their visit took place after we were off the air on Friday. So I really want to talk a bit about what President Biden had to say about the shootings, but also uh, during a visit to the CDC, what he had to say about COVID-19. So we're going to talk about all that, election bills that are on the table still with um, only a week left in the legislative session, and a lot more on today's show we're joined, as I am almost every Monday, by my good friend Jim Galloway, the uh, former political uh, analyst, political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, good to have you with us, as always.
2: Great to be here. Uh, I hope you had a good weekend. It was, it was, uh, the this, this sunshine was kind of a nice break.
1: It was a beautiful weekend. Thank you very much for for asking. Um, we're also joined by uh, Dr. Audrey Haynes, professor <clears throat> of political science, excuse me, at the University of Georgia and the founder and head of the Applied Politics Program at UGA. Audrey, I uh, became a follower of your applied. Uh, politics program on Facebook. And I see you are routinely placing your students who go through the program in really terrific jobs in Washington and beyond.
0: Yes, we are. That is really the point of the program is to give them access to people who can share their knowledge and experience with them in the classroom and beyond. And, you know, as they learn all of those great skills and how to build their uh, relations Network, they apply it. And, you know, I get good news every day. And, by the way, we just finished recruiting our sixth class for Applied Politics. So we'll be announcing um, the members of those shortly. But it's a great program. But we wouldn't be able to do it without so many of um, these great practitioners who work in D.C. and in the, in the state and are willing to share all of their knowledge with students. There's a lot of paying it forward that goes on.
1: Well, congratulations uh, for the success you're having. Uh, Julianne Thompson, longtime conservative activist in Georgia, Republican strategist, is back with us today. Julianne, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing wonderfully, thank you, and I appreciate you having me. It's great to be here with everyone today.
1: Absolutely, Howard Franklin is one of the others that you're glad to be with. I know Howard Franklin, a Democratic political consultant, and also the managing partner at Ohio River South, a um, Howard. Do I dare say a lobbying and government relations firm?
4: Yes, I you know do.
1: lobbying is not uh, not your favorite term. Anybody's favorite term.
4: You know, we're doing our best to change how people feel about it, but this is a nice respite from the Capitol today. It is. Uh, Legislative day, five left. And after this, I'll be down there. So, yeah, I'll take it.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for taking the time to be uh, with us, Howard. Um, All right, let's get right to it. Um, Jim Galloway, uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris in town on Friday afternoon as they made a visit to CDC Uh, to get a briefing on how things were going out there. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But later in the afternoon, they went over to Emory. They met with uh, Asian-American leaders in Georgia, some of them state representatives like Sam Park, who was on the show last week, B. Gwynn, who's uh, been a frequent panelist on the show, and others. And, Jim, let me play first what President Biden uh, said when he made his remarks about the shootings at Emory University, and then we'll talk about it.
5: There are simply some core values and beliefs that should bring us together as Americans. One of them is standing together against hate, against racism, the ugly poison that has long haunted and plagued our nation. The Vice President and I, as I said, met with leaders from the Asian American community here in Georgia. We talked about Tuesday's mass shooting, about another example of public health crisis of gun violence, in this country, eight people killed, seven women, six were of Asian descent,
1: all fellow Americans, each one of them we mourn. You know, Jim, one of the first things that struck me about his comments, no equivocating by President Biden. We've had uh, this debate, or, or I don't know if debate, but certainly disagreement over whether this was a crime of hate against Asian Americans, whether it was misogyny, uh, uh, hatred of women in some way or another. Uh, it, and, and the, but the, the, the president didn't go there. He just said this was, uh, uh, a, a, a crime motivated by racism.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, he's, uh, basically addressing the same line that, uh, Senator uh, Raphael Warn- Warnock did, uh, yesterday on, on, on meet the press. Basically, you know, when asked if it was a hate crime and he's, he said, we all know hate when we see it. Uh, yeah. He, uh, one thing, to, one, but one thing to note here is, is is uh, just under the auspices of this hate crimes bill that was passed only in, only in uh, last June, uh, uh, gender is included. It, it, ethnicity does not have to be a determining factor; gender can be as well. Audrey, um,
1: weigh in on this for us.
0: Well, you know, it was interesting. I've been reading some things about just general statistics from our um, Asian-American communities. And, you know, there has been a, an uptick in violence. And one of the things that um, I learned was that generally, um, especially uh, Asian women, have been targets of, of um, criminal and non-criminal uh, incidents involving um, sort of hate. And, you know, the two things may not be necessarily um, uh, together all the time. Um, They get a little um, complicated sometimes. But, you know, those numbers have been there for quite some time. But as the virus and some of the rhetoric that has emerged, those have increased as well. So you've seen uh, the elderly, especially in high-crime areas, Asian elderly, um, often the focus of criminal behavior, but then the racist attacks have increased as well over the last couple of years.
1: Julianne?
3: Yes, I agree with everything that's been said so far. Um, and and I think that we all need to be very, very alert as the as to the situations of bigotry that are affecting the Asian American community. I've heard from from many friends um, about the hate that they encounter on a regular basis, especially, that they have encountered um, as a result of, of a lot of people's uh, racially motivated reactions to the pandemic, which has just been absolutely terrible that um, that Asian Americans have been the victim of, of a lot of just terrible comments that have happened from officials as well as just uh, just regular citizens. And I know that there's been a lot of focus on this particular shooting incident at the massage parlors and rightfully so. And I think as a result, it's it's important to uh, not lose sight of the fact, you know, going back to what the professor said just a few minutes ago um, and talking about criminal activity and Asian Americans that have been um, a target of a lot of criminal activity, I think it's important To remember that, that these types of businesses have been a bastion for sex trafficking, uh, that has particularly affected young Asian American, uh, or young Asian women and men. And we seriously also need to investigate how these dangers have affected that community and what we can do as a society to stop that.
4: Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm glad that the president and the vice president spoke directly to this. I think we should also commend, uh, I think, the Rainbow Coalition of the leaders from both sides of the aisle who call the attack what, it, what we all plainly see it as, you know, racially motivated and deserving of a designation as a hate crime. I, you know, seeing Republican Chuck Abstration and Democrat B. Wynn talk about this in the same breath gives me a little bit of hope that not everything has to be viewed to a partisan lens. So I, I thought it was good of us to come together. And, you know, I think it also marks the fact that Georgia is going to be the political center of the universe for, you know, a, a little while to come.
1: Yeah, uh, Jim, uh, uh, Howard mentions uh, Chuck Efstration, the Republican, of course, from Gwinnett County, who was the principal sponsor of the hate crimes bill, which finally was passed last year. After literally decades of efforts by uh, some legislators to uh, put a hate crimes law in place in Georgia, ironically, it was usually fought because uh, there were conservative legislators who did not want language that protected gays and lesbians. Um, uh, there was there wasn't as much, and some of the some of it had to do with the fact that there were conservatives who said, "Oh well, all crimes are." Are basically uh, hate crimes because they're uh, uh, you know uh, uh, violence against uh, uh, people uh, of any kind is a hate crime. But the point is, for the most part, it was a prejudice about gays and lesbians that stopped it from passing in the past.
2: Right, and, and and this is one thing that we need to keep in mind as as we discuss this is 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 that this 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 hate crimes bill in Georgia is very new. I don't believe that there have been any prosecutions under its auspices yet. Uh, The other thing thing to keep in mind is that that this was something – when it was pushed through the legislature, this is something that law enforcement wanted. Uh, One of the big supporters of this was was, uh, 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 GBI, the former GBI director, Vernon uh, – I'm blanking on his name here. Somebody help me out, please – yeah, uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Vernon, we'll
1: we'll get to it. We'll get yeah. to it. Uh mm-hmm.
2: but 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 it, it but it had plenty of uh, it, it had plenty of law enforcement support, and so I, I don't think Vernon uh, I Keenan, think,
1: Jim. Vernon thank Keenan. you very much,
2: Deena, Vernon Keenan. Sorry, Vernon. Uh, but but uh, what I guess what I'm getting at is is that a little patience uh, is necessary. Uh, before we get the full kind of extent of the charges that are going to be placed against this young 21-year-old man.
1: All right, um, we're going to watch how this unfolds. Um, I, I want to just mention one thing briefly, uh, because Julianne uh, makes the point uh, about the fact that there are, certainly we are aware that, that there are some spas that are in fact dealing with... Uh, they, they are uh, dealing with sex workers. Um, perhaps sex trafficking has been involved in some of them. I, I'm going to be very careful on this show to talk about that at all, because we really don't know anything yet in detail, to the best of my knowledge, about these three particular spas. And, and we also want to honor um, the victims uh, right now of these horrible shootings. So... With your indulgence, all of you out there in the listening audience, I'm going to be very, very careful, although Julie, Julianne makes a good point, that um, the state for a long time has investigated, looked at some of the spas in Georgia to see whether in fact um, they are uh, involved in prostitution, in sex trafficking, and, and that's something we want to keep an eye on, but for the time being, we're going to be kind of careful About that on Political Rewind, and and I hope you all understand that. Um, Let's move on. Uh, Jim, you know, for the entire tenure of the virus when Donald Trump was president, the CDC was pushed to the side, was demonized by some in the Trump administration. Certainly was overruled in many cases by administration folks who did not want to see the CDC uh, 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 issue independent uh, reports of what was happening with the virus. uh, Tried to stop CDC from publishing guidelines that were done independently. And Jim, we all in this community, we our neighbors, some of our neighbors have worked at CDC forever. And during that period, Jim, we talked on this show any number of times about the fact that uh, CDC uh, p- uh, people were uh, being uh, unfairly maligned, and uh, and and all of that with President Biden's visit uh, turned a corner this past Friday.
2: Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've got a family member who works over at the CDC, and uh, we were we were talking. Uh, uh, late Friday afternoon, right after right after Joe Biden made his appearance, and uh, 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 her her reaction was almost just was one of bliss, simply because you know her because it, 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 she and her her coworkers finally felt appreciated. If you'll recall, back in July, uh, uh, we had uh, we had the Trump administration insert in, in a of loyalist there and who was who was trying to uh, to uh, rewrite some of the uh, so, some of the uh, advice and findings that the that the CDC was was handing out and uh, and and when the when he met resistance uh, he he accused uh, he accused a cabal within the CDC of trying to usurp uh, the Trump administration so that that was that was that was an extremely low point for for what is, Pretty much the the, everybody understands is the 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 best uh, uh, pandemic oriented agency in the world. Let's listen
1: to just a little bit of what President Biden told CDC workers when he was visiting them on Friday afternoon.
5: (laughs) But I came here to say thank you, because you're not only changing the psyche of the country, Mm -hmm. you're saving lives, you're saving lives but you're changing the psyche of the country. And this is, as I said, I, I, it's not being I, — I don't i don't think we're being chauvinistic about our country, but this is — think about it. We're the only country in the world that has every time we've gone into a crisis have come out stronger immediately after the crisis than when we went in before the crisis.
1: Howard, as Jim points out, CDC workers, many of whom have been dedicated to that agency for many years, have waited a long time to hear a president of the United States thank them like that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's absolutely uh, well-earned and overdue. Uh, And this president deserves credit for uh, his administration springing into action and, you know, hitting that 100 million vaccinations uh, goal uh, weeks ahead of schedule. And I think just, you know, as he said, um, you know, very thoughtfully and very diplomatically, that the return to the upliftment of science is just an important part of what we're going to have to do in order to, to face down this pandemic. So we're all excited to see it, obviously even more so as Georgians uh, in the home of the CDC. Um,
1: Julianne, what is it? you know, uh, President Trump did visit CDC early on uh, in the pandemic, uh, but even in that visit, Uh, the then president uh, pretty much pushed CDC officials to the background so that he could uh, command the attention of the media gathered there. Uh, Is this a, from a Republican point of view, is this a welcome change? um, Or do you think we give Biden too much credit in this moment for the way he is uh, talking about the virus and the people who are fighting it?
3: Well, that's a very good question. Um, I I want to start out by saying I know that health workers in Georgia and the CDC are working really hard to to get these doses administered. And uh, we really need to thank them for their efforts to keep our community safe and healthy. Um, as I mentioned to you before we actually started the show, my mother, who is over 75, and my brother, who's diabetic, have both been able to get their vaccines, and I and I feel very thankful for that, and they feel a lot safer. And I'm looking forward to the day that it opens up to where I can get it. All of that being said, um, I think it's to, to answer your question from a Republican perspective. I think it's important for those of us um, like myself who are not anti-vaccine um, and who have influence in Republican circles uh, to be able to. To have our voices heard and work with health officials and the government where we can to alleviate a lot of the fear that I know that is being uh, perpetrated in Republican circles. um, Where people have fear of these vaccines, because I mean that fear for them is real and it's very prevalent in Georgia and I'm sure you've seen some of the television shows where they've interviewed Georgians about vaccines and and talked about that fear. and i I think that that, along with the fact that there there seems to be a lot of fear among the African American community as well as a result of a lot of the atrocities that have happened in the past and I think that that is something that that we are all cognizant of and should be very understanding of and um that being said, I think fear is another reason why I believe that we are slower to vaccinate and mask the way that that we are trying to do here in Georgia and around the country. And, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help with that. And I hope that other Republicans will as
0: well. And, and I'll follow up on that and say that in government generally, it's, it's very important that some of the elements of um, our, our institutions remain non-political, particularly in the public health region. And this feels more like a transition back to the less political and politicization of uh, public health issues. Biden has actually been very disciplined, I think, in terms of his messaging and also in terms of standing back and allowing some of those institutions to take a lead and, and work on the forefront of this issue. And for many um, professionals, you know, this is important, and it allows them to get the information out without the noise that comes from creating more of that uh, political messaging rather than the public health messaging. So that's a that's a positive. I mean, there's still elements of everything in politics that will stay political. uh, But I think that in terms of the CDC and their mission, they feel that they now can carry it out with much less
2: interference.
1: So uh, we're going to get to our first break in the show in a moment, but I just, we've talked on the show frequently about the rate of vaccination in Georgia and discussed the fact that uh, for for throughout the vaccination process across the country, Georgia has been last in the country in the number of shots in arms per 100,000. Uh, we had the governor's communications director, Cody Hall, on the show last week, who uh, gave us a different interpretation of that, saying that Georgia's done a... a a good job getting shots in the arms of the most vulnerable people, those 65 and older. Uh, I get that. But I do want to say, since we've been somewhat critical of the state, that they have now stepped up over the last few days. Um, They had had a rate of vaccinations of about uh, 78% of vaccine supply to shots in arms. They're now up to 86%. 3.2 million Georgians have now had a vaccine 2 plus million of them have had the first shot another million 144 have had both shots so the state is stepping up and um the state did just announce that and the feds because they're part of this that Mercedes-Benz Stadium is going to be the site uh in the weeks in the next couple of weeks where they're going to be putting 60 70,000 shots into people's arms uh in the time ahead so It may be a good sign uh, after all the criticism that things are starting to pick up and more and more people are going to get vaccinated. Jim, before we go to break, you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, there's a there's a really interesting AP uh, report out this morning that says that says in Georgia and other states that opened their uh, their the door is wide to a whole range of people to get the vaccine. They're actually having a slower rollout, and it's it's a it's it's a very logistically oriented argument that that because they had so many people eligible, their the the, the appointment systems, the internet their, their uh, the, the the technical systems could not handle the rush and they crashed. So you have the states yeah. that have done a slower rollout have actually. Uh, actually performed better in terms of shots into arms.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. And the uh, report uh, uh, indicates that South Carolina and Florida are the strongest examples of that, opening the door for so many people that the technology and the available vaccine and people to give the shots uh, were not able to handle. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break. A lot of election news and the legislature to talk about. We're going to do that in just a moment on Political Rewind.
5: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Dr. Audrey Haynes, uh, Julianne Thompson, Howard Franklin, Jim Galloway, all join me for today's political rewind. Howard, the uh, news out of the legislature, in terms of these uh, this rainstorm of election bills that have been introduced down there this session by Republicans, is sort of a mixed bag uh, today. And, and let's talk about what that means, Howard. Um, number one, some of the some of the bills that Democrats were most uh, uh, concerned about, uh, were really upset about, were automatic voter registration, um, an end to Sunday voting, and an end to no-excuse absentee balloting. And we've talked about all those pretty extensively on Political Rewind, but we do have to say that toward the end of last week, Republicans retreated on all three of those measures. Automatic voter registration remains; it will remain in place Sunday voting will continue, and no excuse absentee balloting will still be allowed. And in fact, after talking about um, reducing the number of early voting dates, it looks like the legislature is going to expand them. Those are victories for Democrats. Yes, Howard?
4: Yeah, I, you can say that there were victories for Democrats. You could also look at this as a mixed bag. I know um, the Senate Bill 202 substitute that came out on Friday had some other... You know, very dangerous uh, legislation or language included in it. It criminalized giving food or water to folks standing in long lines. You know, it, uh, it uh, <clears throat> actually made uh, shorter the period uh, that uh, those those drop boxes that we were able to use last year can be available. Um, and and also, I think it takes away the ability to solicit outside funds like grant dollars uh for elections offices i mean I, i've worked in government for a fair amount of time i can't imagine outlawing the ability for local governments to be able to receive to apply for and receive grant dollars to to more effectively carry out their roles and responsibilities so there's still some bad things in the senate um the senate bill 202 the sub and of course. You know, we've got a bunch of different bills flying around. I I think the expectation for the majority of the legislative session would be that the House would have a bill, the Senate would have a bill, and we'd have a conference committee to sort out what the details would be. So I I don't think we're out of the woods on this or in a position to celebrate just yet.
1: I— Gee, Howard, I was trying to give you a chance to have a, some, a little something to take away positively. <laughs> yes, we are going to talk about the other elements of this bill that are still uh, creating great controversy. So with that in mind, well, let me ask you about those f- few measures, first of all. Uh, Audrey Haynes, the question is, when they looked at no excuse absentee balloting, ending automatic voter registration, and especially especially eliminating Sunday voting, which would have been such a, had such an impact on, on, on the uh, souls to the polls votes in African-American churches. Do you think Republicans realized that there was going to be too high a price to pay for taking those steps?
0: I certainly don't think they realized it initially, because look at the deluge of uh, those pieces of legislation that were presented to the public. What they didn't realize, I think, is that there's no appetite. There's very limited appetite before uh, for most people who really think about these issues, including uh, the businesses in the state. Moreover, we also have stronger leadership in terms of defending those rights than we've had previously in the state and a great deal more transparency, it seemed like it was such an obvious ploy. I mean, that was even people who don't think deeply about this. In listening to the deluge, I mean, you did have two groups I mean, out there, and one group specifically was fed the, the lie that there was tremendous voter fraud when there actually wasn't. And you had a split within Democrats who were willing to tell that lie and those who were unwilling to tell that lie. So I think that Most of the people in the public in the state of Georgia, I mean, you can't run away from the fact that it seems so obvious. And so with all of those factors coming in, I'm not surprised that they had to step back, Um, especially when they were confronted with questions directed at, show us the thought. Say there's a problem, show us where that problem is. And when you can't demonstrate in any sense where that problem is. Um, you know, we, we're going to see some of this with probably legislation about, you know, defunding the police. Where is that actually happening? You know, is there a problem regarding that? Um, so, yes, I think that the winners actually are not Democrats or Republicans. The winners are the people who want to vote in elections. And those include Republicans, Democrats and Independents.
1: Julianne?
3: Well, that's right. And and I think that there's um there's been a lot of data that's been coming in that show that Republicans use early and absentee voting, um, especially in 2020. I mean, there's been so much information that's come out that has shown uh, that Republicans can no longer be classified as Election Day voters, more than half in the 2020 general election voted early or absentee. Um, So I think that legislators know that overly restrictive measures on early voting are gonna hurt their own electorate. Um, I think that the real challenge for Republican lawmakers is uh, to balance that knowledge with the very real issue that's on the mind of Republicans in 2020 and that is election reform and the fact that they're calling for election law changes. And um, they're going to have to focus on those changes in areas that actually enhance ballot security and bring confidence to voters while at the same time measuring their own response by not cutting or restricting too much um, on the the type of voting that their constituents use. It's a balancing act. Um, and it's very you know, it's very difficult, I'm sure, for Republican legislators right now, but it is the issue. In the 2020 legislative session, for Republicans, not just in Georgia, but around the country.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Bill. One of the things we haven't talked about yet is the uh, is the is is the runoff issue, uh, and that's where I think that's if if you're looking at a place where where Republicans are putting a thumb on the scale, uh, that's that's where it is. Uh, uh, the January fifth victories of uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in the two Senate uh, runoffs were uh, just a just that was just a watershed moment because uh, Democrats had had been had been had been skunked essentially in in all those in in in, in uh, previous runoffs to uh, dating back to 1992, uh, and 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 in part it's because. Georgia state law required the runoff within four weeks of the original election date. You know, if you have a day, a, a general election, first Tuesday in November, well, that, that first Tuesday in December is coming right after Thanksgiving. Uh, and, and it's very, very hard because Republican voters were older voters. They were the ones more likely to turn out and save the Republican candidate here. Uh, in 2013, there was a federal lawsuit that noted that uh, expatriate uh, Georgians and George, uh, Georgians in the military serving overseas uh, couldn't participate in runoffs because uh, because of the absentee ballot issue. It just t- took too long. So in 2013, there was a federal judge who ordered that that runoffs for federal runoffs only, not state runoffs. Federal runoffs would be uh, shifted to nine weeks after the voting date, uh, i.e., the, the first first Tuesday in in, in January. That gave uh, that gave, uh, Democrats two crucial elements. Uh, one was, one was time and the other one was money because they had all the, because they had, uh, they, they had essentially two months to, to, to organize both. This, 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 uh, this sends it back to the original, uh, four weeks. OK, so, Howard, I want to get you in here, but let me ex- uh,
1: uh, just uh, uh, make a point about what Jim just said, uh, because this is the other side of what's happening down there. Yes, you were right, Howard, uh, uh, reducing the number of drop boxes and, and insisting that they put inside early voting locations is one of the measures that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Republicans are still uh, pushing. But what Jim just talked about is our two interesting proposals that emerged from this 93, 94 page massive bill which came out of this it's the house version of what the senate sent them and here's the two things it did number one as jim points out it reduces again to four weeks the time period between a general election and a runoff election um it also uh has an interesting twist on military and overseas balloting It says there will be instant runoffs in those cases. In other words, if I'm an overseas voter, I will say this is the candidate I want to elect in the general election. Oh, if there's a runoff, this is the candidate I want to win that race. So that's one thing. The other thing that they've added is that there should be primaries in special election campaigns. So let me take it one step further and turn it over to you. Sorry, I'm talking so much. What this means is certainly in the Raphael Warnock-Kelly Leffler race, had there been a Republican primary, uh, and 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 Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler had duked it out there, and we'd had one person emerge to challenge Warnock, Republicans think they could have won that race. On the other side of that, David Perdue came within a hair's breadth of winning against John Ossoff in the general election. Um, But because of the nine week voting period for the runoff, Democrats, as you know, Howard, were able to build up a big money uh, lead. As Jim pointed out, they were able to push forward on getting Warnock elected, I mean, on Ossoff elected. So both of those measures tend right now to favor Republicans. Now it's your turn.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. Um, And I think that this is, uh, I think what Julianne mentioned earlier, you know, the elections reform has been the legislative soup du jour during the General Assembly. I doubt very seriously that it is what uh, rank and file Republican voters are concerned about or rank among their top issues. Uh, Once we get outside the session, when we're talking about kitchen table issues. These are uh, issues that Democrats are going to have to figure out how to contend with, but you know, keep in mind, uh, we're a resilient party. We we figured it out before. I think, in, in, even in your example, I don't believe that the, for instance, in the senator, um, in uh, in the senator Perdue race, this wouldn't have prevented Perdue from going to a runoff. It just would have. Given him a few thousand or several thousand additional votes from overseas uh, military folks who had voted in the general, and then began him with a little bit of a head start potentially in the runoff, as I understand it. So, I, I, I you know, I think you just got to be careful what you wish for. I think the Republicans have had control of the, you know, the elections machinery for the better part of the last two decades. And it hasn't, and it did not stop this this watershed election in in November and in January. Um, I I just think you got to be really careful what you work for, and I think that um, you know the folks with Stacey Abrams and Verified and and across the country have figured out and shown the ability to be resilient no matter how the rules uh, get changed or how the goalposts happen to move.
0: Yes, Howard is uh, absolutely right. I would also note that you know instances like these, especially with the special elections and and um, you know runoffs, are somewhat uh, rare, right? Especially that special election uh, that was generated with that huge jungle primary that we had. Um, so uh, parties always innovate, and whatever challenges you put forward, uh, they they will find a way to to drum up votes, and even if they are creating. What seems like an advantage at this point, you know, will it be an advantage in 20 years from now or 10 years from now because things are changing? In fact, if you look at all the growth that's happening and, you know, when we have new uh, redistricting at the state level, I expect that Democrats are going to win more seats in the the Georgia General Assembly. And, and, you know, some of these things that are being done now are likely going to benefit them in the future. So you always have to be careful when you're making um, changes um, to election systems, and the best way to do it is to think long and hard about what you're doing, um, because there are always unintended consequences.
2: Uh, yeah, Bill, what's what's interesting here is, and, and, and just to build on what Audrey was was, was saying, uh, and it, it, listeners out there might uh, think that this is uh, Republicans are have taken a very very complicated route. Uh, to, to get what they want, and they and they and they have the, because there was a far more simpler su- solution to all of this, and that is don't mandate uh, don't mandate a 50% plus one uh, uh, r- result. Uh, you could have had you could have had we could have gone back in in the 90, in mid 1990s we had a we had a system whereby if you finished uh, the finisher with the most votes over 45% was was automatically the winner. They could have gone back to that system, eliminated all the runoffs. They chose not to.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great point, Jim. Why haven't they looked at eliminating the 50% plus one mandate to win an election? Julianne, I want to give you a chance to weigh in, excuse me, before uh, we take a break here. Uh, it, It does seem like uh, Republicans are going about this in a very complicated way. Look at how long it took me to explain what these two measures they've now uh, brought forth are, are going to mean. Uh,
3: well, yes, it's, it's being done very surgically and very precise, which, which it has to be. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about a, a fundamental right of, of our citizens to vote. I think um mm-hmm. When I talk to people, the the instant runoffs with the UACABA ballots are just kind of a no-brainer among most of the people that I talk to. It makes a lot of sense, and I, I agree with that. Uh, primaries and special elections, I would be interested, although I, I have not read this section in detail about uh, the primaries and special elections, but I would be interested to know if there are any funding increases that come with, with that sort of a mandate, because, I mean, that adds a great deal of expense to the election process. So I would be interested in knowing that um, because being fiscally responsible is very important to me as well.
1: Uh, Julianne, as somebody who's had a real leadership role in, 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 in many conservative uh, uh, issues over the years, what, what do you think when you hear Jim Galloway say that perhaps it's time to eliminate 50% plus one victory, victories?
3: I agree with him 100%. I absolutely wow. agree with that. Absolutely.
1: Okay. That's, that's interesting news. Thank you for saying that. Let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. <laughs> Julianne Thompson, Howard Franklin, Jim Galloway, Professor Audrey Haynes join us today. So um, every morning at about 5.15, 5.30, uh, I write what in NPR language we call a billboard. It's what you hear. If you listen to us on the radio rather than on podcast, uh, you hear it before NPR news. I give a rundown of what we're going to talk about. So this morning, I wrote that, and one of the things I said was, it looks like Brad Raffensperger may get a challenger pretty soon in the re-election campaign for Secretary of State. I was careful to couch it in language that didn't make assumptions. I said, maybe Jody Heiss, the congressman, is going to run. Well, Galloway, while we're on the air, we get news. Jody Heiss has now announced (laughs) that he is going to go after Brad Raffensperger's Secretary of State job.
2: Yeah, it, it, it says a couple of things. Number one, it says that being the minority in the U.S. House is no fun, no matter how how, how many bombs you throw. And and, uh, and it, it, but it also it, it it also puts front and center in the 2022 primary the issue of Donald Trump, uh, the 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 outcome of the 2020 election, and everyone's reaction to it. Jody Heiss was one of those people who was in favor of dumping 5 million Georgia votes into the Chattahoochee River when it came to the presidential contest. He was also, if you'll recall, uh, it, it, it was, uh, he put up a post on social media uh, on January 6th during the Capitol riot uh, saying this is our, our 1776 moment. Uh, which he is going to have to explain he's you know he's saying uh, he, he was saying that this was he put that up before the violence started uh but you know there again uh, you have to there's there's going to be some history that has to be exhumed Julianne, um,
1: Heiss was a little bit careful in the way, you know, we'll hear how he talks about this going forward, but uh, two things about it. Number one, here's what he said about Raffensburger. He didn't, he said, quote, free and fair elections are the foundation of our country. What Brad Raffensperger did was create cracks in the integrity of our elections which I wholeheartedly believe individuals took advantage of in 2020. It'll be interesting to hear how he explains just what he meant by that. I was interested in the fact, though, that what he did not say was Brad Raffensperger refused to acknowledge that George's election of Joe Biden was done through fraud and deceit. I I thought that was interesting because certainly he's essentially endorsed that position in the past
3: he has. And most certainly the the primary for SOS is in the Republican primary is going to be uh, a referendum one way or another on the performance of the office. Um, that being said, Jody Heiss is not the only Republican that has announced that he's running. Uh, former mayor of Alpharetta, David Belisle, has also announced that he is seeking that Uh, Position as well, and he has already uh, started running. So, so it's. Quickly becoming a a crowded primary, and it'll be interesting to to watch and as as well earlier in the week, we heard that the president is going to be making an announcement here um, in Georgia today. So it'll be interesting to see—is that going to be in the Secretary of State's race? Will that have to do with the United States Senate? There's a lot of talk about Herschel Walker, where that's concerned. So, what is the president actually coming um, to Georgia or announcing about Georgia with regard to his endorsement for 2022?
4: Bill, you know, I just think this this keeps Georgia, you know, squarely at the center of the political universe for at least another election cycle, probably for for a bit longer. You know, and I think the difficulty here for Republicans uh, who are trying to turn the page in the Trump presidency, who are, you know, hoping to make some uh, some changes to the state's election system and then to put behind them these unfounded claims and accusations about voter fraud. They're going to have to have a, a completely different reckoning, um, especially when you put the chief elections officer, you know, on trial, or as you, you know, as you guys mentioned, a referendum on his service. I honestly don't believe. You know, I appreciate what you said, Bill. About uh, Congressman Heiss being careful with his this word choice at the outset of this announcement, but I guarantee you, we all have watched Republican primaries. They only go in one direction. They're not going to get more civil. They're not going to you know tack uh, more toward the truth. They're going to they're going to go in a, in a direction that's going to be difficult uh, for middle of the road, independents, and, and conservatives to really see themselves in any of the rhetoric that's coming out of them. So I I think this is just difficult for. Uh, all the constitutional officers who are on the ballot in 2022 uh, to have this conversation while they're also trying to you know, fight for re-election.
1: I think that's a really good point, and I want to pick up on it with you, if I may, Audrey. Although, first, let me say Vernon Jones, we're told, is also thinking about being a Republican candidate for Secretary of State. And uh, he certainly won the favor of Donald Trump in uh, aligning with him as a former Democrat, uh, and an African-American on calling the election in Georgia fraud. But, but Audrey, uh, B. Gwynn is being uh, considered a possible candidate for that secretary of state's job. And here's the larger question, and Howard raised it. Um, our constitutional offices have been held by Republicans, all Republicans, for almost two decades. Is 2022 the year, given the purpling of Georgia, when we might see genuinely competitive races that Democrats could win in some of these constitutional races?
0: Well, you know what? I think that most of us who study politics hope that is the case, because one of the things that we know is that when these elections become more competitive, it's more likely we're going to see some good ideas, better ideas, and more competition of ideas. Um, and hopefully that will benefit the state of Georgia. I would say that especially the Secretary of State's office should be held by someone who takes their job seriously, takes their oath to the state, and it's public seriously, because the last thing you really want to see uh, injected into the Secretary of State's office is higher, greater politicization. I think that in terms of this race, it's going to be competitive, but I think Raffensperger is going to benefit from, um, in the primary, votes from independents, moderate Democrats who thought that he handled um, the question of, you know, fake fraud uh, much better than expected. And I can't see someone like Jody Heiss who has been so strongly associated with Trump and Stop the Deal and the insurrection, um, you know, winning a statewide Election. I think that's going to be a really hard carry for him at this point.
1: So, Julianne, let me ask you another hard question. Is Brad Raffensperger almost guaranteed to lose the Republican base in a primary runoff after the way he refused to, uh, to accede to uh, uh, the former president's uh, insistence that he call the Georgia presidential race a fraud?
3: Well, I think it depends on what you consider to be the Republican base. If you are talking about Republican party activists, most definitely. So if you are talking about rank and file Republicans, like a lot of the people that live in my neighborhood that are really not into a lot of these uh, particular issues when it comes to arguing amongst ourselves, um, I, I don't know, it remains to be seen. Um, I, I'm not going to try to predict that particular race, but but it is definitely going to be a heated one. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And I think when it comes to 2022, all of the constitutional officers that are up for reelection are are in for some heated primaries. And you know, Georgians have a uh, have a history, especially Georgia Republicans, have a history of being independent-minded. So I, I think if you look at the fact that, you know, things that have happened in the past um, with regard to elections, we're more independent-minded. So I don't know that outside interference is going to make a big difference.
1: Julianne Thompson gets the last word on today's show. Thank you for being with us, Howard Franklin, Professor Audrey Haynes, Jim Galloway. A pleasure to have all of you here for the conversation uh, today. We're going to be back with another edition of Political Rewind, of course, tomorrow. Uh, I hope you'll all join us then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask. and, And if you haven't gotten a vaccine so far, this is a great time to start planning how you're going to do it. See you all tomorrow.